Well, Father God, we do thank you for this, this great day that, that we have today. We thank you for the snow that covers so much that it just looks new, it looks fresh. It's, it's like you said that you, you cover over our sins, but that was then. Now you remove our sin completely. So not only is it not blocked between you and us, but it, it changes us from the inside out. So we rejoice over those things, and we also know that it will help in the summer when things get too dry. And God, in the church, things get too dry also because we just don't take advantage of that living water that you have for us. So this morning, Lord, let your living water flow over us. Let it come inside of us. Let it come from within us. Open up your word to us, Lord, that we might know who we are and what you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, a lot of people have 12 days of Christmas. We had three weeks of it. And even with the three weeks that we've gone over Christmas stuff the last three weeks, we've barely touched on, on some of this stuff. We haven't seen the whole Christmas story at all. We barely looked at any of the prophecies that were concerning the Messiah and how he was to be born and how Jesus fulfilled all of them. We barely make mention of the trip to the temple to make the purification for the firstborn son that Mary ended up doing. We didn't get to Simeon and Anna at all. Do you remember them? Jesus comes with Mary and, and Joseph into the, the temple and they recognize baby Messiah and they go and, and take, can you imagine going to Mary and taking your baby and, and, and uh, blessing him and prophesying over him? So we barely touched on some of this stuff with Christmas as well. But it's time to get back to the road to the cross. And in Luke chapter 16, we're just weeks away from the crucifixion. Let's bring us back up to, to speed from where we were. Jesus knows that time is short. And because of it, he has a sense of urgency. I mean, it's not that he was frivolous with the things that he's done before, but now it's like, we've got to make sure it's this, 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 and and heading on down the road to the cross. And so, so far in Luke chapter 16, we've seen things like the unfaithful steward. Remember, he was the, the servant who was placed over the financial things of, of his master, all the concerns of the household. But he was pilfering from those things, and he was living comfortably uh, in, instead of being concerned about the well-being of the master. And so the point of this is, is, number one, that the Pharisees would recognize that they are the ones that Jesus is talking about here because they are the ones to whom so much has been given, and yet they're serving themselves instead of serving Jehovah. They're acting like it is God's purpose to serve us instead of us serving him. And secondly, though, unless we be pointing fingers and leaving it short by saying, they, 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 let's look at us. Because what, what are these things saying to us? How do we be faithful stewards of God's finances? And you might be asking, well, you know, how do I deal with God's finances? Where do I ever see God's money to be able to do anything with it? Well, where is God's money? What's well, in your pockets? If everything that we have belongs to God, 
and it does, then it's all to be used for his kingdom, right? We are simply stewards of that. Now, much of that is to be taking care of you. The finances, God's money in your pocket, much of that is to be taking care of you. And I'm not suggesting that you have me or anyone else tell you what to do with, with the money that's in your pocket. We are not going to audit you. We're not going to see what your W-2 or 1040 or whatever it is says that you made and then make sure that you've given enough to the church. We're not going to do that. That's a cult thing to do, man. That's not a, a, a Jesus thing to do. But I think it's prudent for us to realize that we shouldn't be having a stranglehold on our money like Scrooge McDuck. We need to be generous. We need to be giving in, in fact, you need to be asking yourself, if I see a need, can I meet this need? Am I the one that's supposed to meet this need? Because you are an outlet of God's love to the world around you. And many of you people, you go places that, that other people can't go. I mean, not just because you have the badge that says you can go onto lab property and stuff, but we each go to different places and not everyone is, is supposed to be there. And so you are able to touch people that other people can't. So can you meet that person's need? Can you meet uh, a, a need of a, a homeless person? And we know that we can't just meet every need of every homeless person. There needs to be a better foundation for that, and, and sometimes there are. But sometimes it's like, you know, I just need to help with this specific person right here, right now. And we need to not be so close to that that we don't listen to what God has to say. If you see a need, can you meet it? If you see the need but you can't meet it, ask yourself if the church can meet that need. And it's been a while since I've mentioned it and stuff, but we've got those Smith's cards, or I have those Smith's cards, and if you know somebody that has a need for $50 worth of groceries or something, come and get them so that you can hand them out to people, so that we can be the, the hands of Jesus reaching out to people with that. I think I only have one left over after Christmas time and stuff, but I'll get more. So if you need those, come and get some of them. But overall, are we treating stuff as if it actually belongs to us, or are we simply stewards of God's stuff? We have to have that priority right for us. And we look and we see back where we've already read in verse 10, it says, the one who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And the one who is unrighteous in very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust, you, entrust the true wealth to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth and so this is the other thing that we see in the chapter here we see uh, the Pharisees and we see the the hypocrisy or, or perhaps more of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees more of the leaven that we've been told to be aware of not be aware of it's not oh yeah yeah that, that that's that, that's hypocrisy all right no it it's beware of it make sure that it doesn't overtake you because it's easy for it just to come up and, and overtake us. So we need to be careful of that. 
the Pharisees, they were hypocrites about a lot of things, but specifically here, they were, they were hypocrites concerning faithfulness. They weren't faithfully doing the things that, that God had asked them to do. They were doing what they wanted. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing with finances. They were hypocrites concerning finances. And they were ev even hypocrites concerning the marriage vow. Remember we were talking about how um, they had it so that they would just keep on divorcing their wife. And basically they were just trading wives around. And so Jesus said to them, and it's found in verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And he says that to them, not just to everybody, but to them, and with very little grace, because it's grace to the humble, but it's law to the proud. And the Pharisees, they are proud. They are arrogant. And Jesus is telling them, you are not meeting even the criteria that you say that you believe in. See, the Pharisees believe that, hey, we're rich, and that proves that God is blessing us. It, it's God's blessing. He recognizes how holy we are. He recognizes how good we are, that we indeed are supposed to be the leaders. And in fact, it's validation for all these peasants to recognize that they're supposed to be doing what we tell them to do. And it sounds crazy, but there's pastors today that do the same kind of thing. Look at how blessed I am. And so you should be doing what I say. But that's not how any of this works. In fact, in, in verse 17, Jesus said, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Like, you guys have refused what the law has to say, what the scripture has to say, and you've brought up your own understanding. You've brought about what you say that you want it to say instead of holding fast to it. But it's all about sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority. If the pastor says it, it must agree with Scripture to have any authority. If the prophet says it, thus saith the Lord, it has to agree with Scripture to have authority. If the televangelist says it, it must agree with Scripture to have any authority. If the word from the Lord comes from the congregation, it must agree with Scripture to have any authority if you get the idea here it has no authority unless the authority has been granted by the Word of God because it is our authority and the thing about the Bible is it's a looking glass and not a magnifying glass it's a mirror for me to look at myself to let the Word of God speak to me about me not so that I can have a magnifying glass to look at you and find what fault I can find in you. Because guess what? I can easily find fault in you. But because of my arrogance, I don't see it in myself. But it's just as obvious in me if I'll look. Maybe more so, you say, because you're looking at me. See, the Word of God isn't here so that we can condemn other people it's so that we can look at at what god is trying to do in us this is a new year maybe you noticed that did anyone make a resolution 
mean, you can go with the Beatles song back from when you say you want a resolution. No, doesn't work that way. But, but look at this one here. You got the one lady says, my New Year's resolution is to stop putting my foot in my mouth all the time. I'll bet yours is losing weight, huh? Now, I kept the, the last resolution that I made, which is don't make any more resolutions. And the reason I did that is because I find that when I fail at those resolutions, I feel lousy about it. I feel condemned about it. And so much of the time, we'll make these resolutions in our own flesh. We'll say, this is what I'm going to do, instead of saying, God, what is it that you're going to do in me? In fact, what I do nowadays, especially at the beginning of the year, is, is, is pray, God, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, and, and change that. Remove it. Don't let me gloss over it. Don't let me cover it up. Remove it from me so that it's not a, a part of who I am anymore, because it's not a part of my identity. It's not a part of who I'm supposed to be. So God, remove it. Use the mirror of your word to let me see what you see so that you can change it in me. Well, we've got these parables. And the purpose of these parables, and, and all parables, is to see yourself in it. Am I the faithful or the faithless servant? Am I the leavened dough that is full of hypocrisy? Am I the fruitless branch that's going to be cut off? Am I the prodigal? Am I the good field that God is sowing his seed in? All these different parables that we have here, where do I fit in it? Well, here we come upon another story. And some people say it's just that. It's, it's simply a story. It's, it's fiction. It's a parable. But others say that it's probably a true story because Jesus uses a specific person's name specific events as if they have happened just exactly like he's saying it's possible in fact you can have a parable that's actually a true story but regardless what he says next is truth so let's pick it up in verse 19 now there was a rich man and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen enjoying himself in splendor every day and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, but dogs also were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So we have the rich man and Lazarus, a fan favorite with this. And so understand that this is not the Lazarus that is the, the brother of Mary and Martha. This is a completely different Lazarus here. And it's a, a common enough name that we have here. But Lazarus was a pitiful sight. You look at him, he's, he's starving, he's poor, he's sick. He's as hungry as the prodigal son was, but he can't just run home to his father's house. In fact, perhaps he couldn't run at all. Because we see that someone came and laid him at the gate of, of this rich man. Perhaps the sores he had were bed sores because he's paralyzed and he can't move himself at all. It would make sense that someone needed to lay him there. So here we see him. He's on the outside looking in. He's not a part of the humanity he, here. He's out with the dogs. And the dogs are not pets at that time. No one has bred a pug or a chihuahua or any of those other little wimpy dogs and stuff. These are, these are real dogs that are out there. And the way that the dogs were, they were wild and they ran around, but, but um, the people would throw their scraps out. Instead of going to the, to the county dump and stuff, they'd throw the scraps out and the dogs would come and eat them. And so we have Lazarus, who's more a part of the dogs because he's fighting the dogs for the very scraps that they're eating. And instead, they are licking his sores. And so we have this rich man. And it says he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. This is his everyday stuff. It's not like he has one special outfit. He doesn't have that one tuxedo so that he could look like James Bond when he wants to. He's, he's habitually wearing... Uh, fine linen, purple, underneath the car, changing the oil. He's, he's wearing this fine clothing, this three-piece suit or whatever it would be like today. It's not occasional. He's so filthy rich, he doesn't know what to do his, with his wealth. But then we have Lazarus, who's just filthy. Perhaps this rich man has said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build big build bigger barns. Is this the same rich man that we saw last chapter? Who said that? Who did that? Do you remember what Jesus said, or what God said to that rich man? He said, tonight, your very soul is required of you. And he died that very night. Was that a true story as well? Well, we know that was God's reply. So whether it's the same rich man or not, this rich man dies. Did you notice it said that this rich man was buried? It doesn't say that about Lazarus. It doesn't say that his body was taken care of. Maybe his body was discarded just like his person was discarded. In fact, the people who came and laid him at this gate, maybe they're thinking, well, this rich man will take care of him. But how many days in a row do they put him at this rich man's gate and the rich man doesn't take care of him? And why didn't they take care of him? They weren't rich like this guy was rich. But did they have enough to take care of this guy? Do we have enough to help somebody with a meal when they need him? 
I believe we do. But I want you to understand that before the resurrection, there was a place where all dead people came to congregate. That's where they all went. They did not, they do not hang around the earth and haunt people. They do not, did not hang around until All Saints Day, where then everybody then goes up to heaven or wherever. Okay? That's not how it worked back then. Back then, everyone went to a place called Sheol, hell, Hades, death, the grave. It's all called these different things, but it's this one place where all dead people go. And it started from the first dead person. First dead person that we're aware of is Abel. So imagine Abel comes popping into this place. Hello? There's nobody else there until the next person dies, and then he starts getting some company and stuff. But there were two parts to this place, two parts to Hades. There's the one place that we think of as hell with the torment and and agony and, and flame, and on the other half is what just called Abraham's bosom. And with that, it's a place of safety with the father of faith. The father of faith is who who Abraham is. So he is father there. But Lazarus, who, who seemed to belong to the dogs instead of people, now he's comforted, knowing that he is a son of the father of faith, that he belonged to the faith. Well, so maybe like the prodigal, he did run home to his father after all. And at this point, the the rich man can find no comfort anymore. It's not for sale. He doesn't have anything to buy it with. And so Lazarus' agony is over forever. But for this rich man, it is the first day of the rest of his death. And the rich man seems to think that Lazarus is some subservient person, even here in, in death. In, in Hades here, that he's still a nobody. Well, surely I'm, I'm more important than him, so, so Father Abraham, send him over. Let him just a little bit of, of water on his finger so he can touch my tongue because I'm in so much agony here. But he finds out that Lazarus is a son. He's not subservient to him or to anyone else. And notice that even the rich man calls him Father Abraham. But that's because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, not because this rich man was a, a child of faith. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? It, it takes care of everything. It, it levels the field. Whoever the world said that you were, it's overridden by who God says you are. And that's how it will be in eternity. So what heinous crime did this this rich man commits that he is in the agony part of hell. Did he murder? Did he steal? Why would he need to steal? Was he envious? Jealous? Did he commit adultery? I mean, these are things that he probably did in his heart, as Jesus explains, but not outwardly, let's put it that way. So this rich man, he sits around idle all day long, not doing anything. And so maybe that's his his crime, idol worship. Because he's worshiping his wealth, making it a god, because that's what he bowed down to, isn't it? 
he was this rich man. No doubt all he did was dibby-dibby dumb because he was a wealthy man. His sin was refusing to believe. His sin was refusing to trust in God because he didn't need to trust in God in his own mind because he could take care of himself. He refused God. Whereas Lazarus really had no choice, did he? He had to trust in God. Although, you know, people in his position could have blamed God, I suppose. But we see that Lazarus is a child of faith. And now all this rich man wants is to be comforted. He doesn't claim that he doesn't deserve to be there. He doesn't claim that he's been misjudged. He knows that. No one will claim that at that point. Every mouth will be closed. And at the final judgment, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, the Lord Almighty, supreme, no one of higher authority than him. The key is to want to do that now, and then to do that now. We just had an opportunity for worship. Did we do that then? Did we confess Jesus as Lord, as ultimate authority in our worship? Did we bow before him and say, you are God alone. I want what you want. I will worship you, but I will also receive from you the instruction and the change that you want in my life. That's the key. So this is what the rich man wanted. He wanted someone to come over and to bring a little bit of comfort to him. But what did those who were in Abraham's bosom want? Well, in verse 26 it says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able. Did they want to go over there so that they could experience the agony and the torment? They wanted to go over and to comfort those people, didn't they? But they won't be able to. And in heaven it says that every tear will be wiped away. But for those who are in Abraham's bosom at this point right now, I think they were weeping. Because they could see these people. They could hear these people. They knew that across the chasm that there were people who were in this agony of this judgment. So don't be one who wants to cross the divide. Tell people about Jesus today while you can. Because you won't be able to after eternity begins. And I believe this will be our great regret as we watch those that we could have told about Jesus go into eternity without him. We could have warned them. Perhaps as the people sentenced to be banished from the presence of God, as they, they head that way, perhaps they turn back and they look at the people who knew but refused to tell them. And it says in verse 27, speaking of telling people, and he said, then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. Understand that there is nothing that those who are perishing want more than their loved ones to know Jesus. 
And I've used this in counseling with people who have been saying, you know, I, I know my loved one has passed away and I know that they weren't believers in Jesus. So I know they're going to be in torment, banished from the presence of God forever. And they were just so sorrowful with that. And I said, you know, it, it's, it's true and it's a very harsh thing. And it's one of the reasons why in Revelation we see that it's going to take the memory and, and the pain away and things. But the other thing is that we need to recognize what they desire most is for us to follow after Christ to make sure that we are, are not going to be a part of it. In fact, I, I use it at funeral sermons uh, a lot of times. I'll use it as kind of the altar call saying we need to understand what it is that they want for us. I did a funeral for a, a guy that was well known in town. He was a rich man. And he was not a good man. And it was pretty clear that he wasn't a good man by, by everyone. But I did the funeral because his granddaughter was a part of the youth group back in the day. And so as I'm, I'm doing this, and part of the end of the, the sermon was, look, it, it's not my place to judge anyone. But regardless of where he is at this point, what he wants for you is what this rich man said right now, which is, warn them so that they don't come to this place. And whether they go to heaven or whether they go to hell, that's what they want for us. What they want for you is that you would believe in Jesus. People say at funerals, well, this is what they would have wanted. They don't care if they have lilies or roses or carnations or dandelions. They don't care. What they want is for you to know Jesus. Don't add to their regret. And you got to believe that there's a lot of regret in hell, right? I mean, think about it. If, if he could come back, what would Charles Darwin say to us? Don't believe the lies, man. Follow after Jesus. Trust him. If he could come back, Joseph Smith would tell his followers, I was lying to you, man. It was all about what I could get. I wanted money, I wanted women, I wanted these different things, and so I lied to you. Don't follow after my teaching. But there is one who has come back, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live again. And so that's the one we need to listen to. And when Jesus says that, that those people will not believe even if someone returns from the grave. He's speaking about himself returning from the grave. And he's speaking to these Pharisees and these other people that are there at this time who will refuse to believe that Jesus has raised from the dead. And it's not like they didn't know because they're going to have the testimony of the apostles. They're going to have the testimony of over 500 witnesses that saw Jesus all at the same time. They're going to have the testimony even of the, the guards, the, the 12, 14 men who were guarding the tomb gave testimony that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So they have the testimony of all this and still they're going to refuse to believe even if he raised from the dead. And if there's a radio station in hell, it only plays one song. Imagine those, there's no heaven. Maybe some rap, I don't know. 
talk about Sirius XM. But John Lennon must be weeping knowing that he's preached a false gospel to people and people are still listening to his words. So is hell real? Absolutely. Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. Did you know that? Like twice as much, three times as much about hell as he did about heaven. Is it horrible? Well, see for yourself from, from Scripture, not, not personal experience. It's where the goodness and the presence of God is, has been withheld. Right? And in Psalm, I don't remember what Psalm, David says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there with me. But he's talking about Abraham's bosom part of Sheol. He's not talking about the other part of it there, not where the rich man is. And remember, Jesus told the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Did Jesus go to heaven? Did the thief on the cross go to heaven that day? No, Jesus didn't go to heaven until after he raised from the dead. So it wasn't heaven. Nobody else went to heaven either because the resurrection was the declaration that the sacrifice that Jesus had died was acceptable to God. And until the resurrection, sin was not forgiven and people could not go to heaven. So the place of the righteous dead on the one side, the, the place of the unrighteous dead on the other. And it was the righteous dead that Jesus went and preached to and led forth captivity captive according to Ephesians chapter 4. He went there and said, I am the Messiah that you've been trusting in, that you've been waiting for. I'm the one. Come with me if you want to put your faith in me. I mean, why wouldn't you? You know who, that he is. And so the righteous part of hell, Abraham's bosom, boogies out of there, and now it's empty again. All who did trust were raised with him. So let me ask you then, is hell for eternity? No. It's a trick question. See, remember in our Revelation study, it says that after the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, millennial kingdom, that Satan will be released for a season, and then he's going to be able to uh, try to trick anybody that has been born during that millennial kingdom that has never had an opportunity to reject Christ, to reject Christ. And then at that point, uh, Satan, all his demons, death, hell, everything's going to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And that is eternal. But for now, for today, the people who are unrighteous, they do go down to death, hell, Sheol, Hades. But for the believer, we don't go there. It's, I mean, it's where they got the idea of purgatory from. But we don't go there now. Because Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's go directly to heaven. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We don't spend any time in this place of a collection of, of death. It's not a, a, a waiting room, holding place until the doctor comes and gets you. No, we are straight to the presence of Christ. So in a blink of an eye, eternity happens. And so the choice that we make on earth is going to determine our destiny forever. And people blame God for hell, don't they? Oh, God, he's so unrighteous. But don't blame God that hell exists. Thank him for making 
an escape from there. Because like the rich man, no one's going to be able to say, I don't belong there. It's our choice. That's our choice whether we seek the world now instead of God, we reject God for the world, or whether we decide, you know, I, I, I do want God. Because we will reap the eternity of our choice. Those that say, I don't want God, your choice is granted. And your eternity is set. But for those who say, I do want God, there is one way. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Also, whosoever does desire and whosoever does come through Christ, he will not be turned away. And don't think that God desires people to be lost. We know from Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. But there are some people who think, I can live for the world now, reject God now, and I can still have God later on. I can still have heaven later. I can still have all the goodness of God later on, even though I don't want God. But to quote the great theologian Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. It doesn't work that way. If you want God, yes, he is absolutely there. He is absolutely going to reconcile you through Christ if you will come through faith. But we need to understand that hell is real. And two things for us to take with us today. The first one is, is your punishment. For the believer, Jesus took your punishment. Put your trust in the death that Jesus bore for you because he was your substitute. He is the one that took our sin upon him. He became our sin so that he could destroy sin and give us his righteousness. So put your trust in that and take the forgiveness from that punishment. It's a gift of the Father, and it cannot be earned. So don't think that you can do enough. Don't think that you can earn it at some point. And like has been mentioned before in the past, like purgatory, the idea is I will stay in purgatory until I can pay off my sin. There is no way you can pay off your sin. And so you're there for eternity unless Christ pays off your sin. But it's our choice. But there's only one way. It's an either or. Perhaps there's another radio station in hell. And in this radio station, it only plays the song, Who's Crying Now? Which is the title of the message this morning. Because this, this rich man, it was Lazarus that was crying. He was weeping in this life. But it's the rich man who's weeping now. And it wasn't just because, well, rich men deserve to go to hell. It's not just that, well, if, if I have a bad life now, then I deserve to go to heaven. It doesn't work that way either. And back in the 60s, when we were on car trips with my parents... We used to play 8-track after 8-track on these big, long road trips and stuff. And one of them was Marty Robbins. And he was playing this, this song, My Woman, My Woman, My Wife. 
where she deserves to go to heaven because she's been through hell on earth. And yeah, you know, the story is pretty bleak and sad and stuff like that, but that isn't what gets you there. The only way to get to heaven is because you have trusted in Christ and his death for you. So don't think that you deserve heaven because we don't. And so that brings us to the second point, which is your regret. Your regret. When time is up, your time is up. Game over. It's not like, I don't know if you've ever played board games with people. They'll take their turn and they'll go, wait, no, wait a minute. I want to change that. Too late. Game is over. And eternity is set in motion. If you haven't accepted Christ at that point, if you haven't lived for him, if he isn't your curios, your Lord, then he's never going to be. But it's also for telling other people about Jesus. That's where our regret's going to be as believers. You can no longer tell people about Jesus when eternity happens, either for you or for them. And so just as you face your eternity, they will face theirs. But a lot of times we, we don't tell our friends about them. We're, we're concerned about our friendship. But are you so worried about losing a friendship that you are willing to lose a friend? We need to have the, the compassion and the urgency that Jesus has at this point in his ministry. And we need to understand the reality of it. And Jesus spoke about hell to the religious hypocrite and to the believer. He spoke to the believer mostly because he wants us to be motiv motivated to tell the world. He did not slap people in the head with it. He's slapping us in the head so that we'll wake up and make sure that we're doing the job that the church is supposed to be doing. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. It, it, it's hard sometimes because we, we don't like thinking about, about there being a hell, about there being torments. But we also know, God, that with the world the way that it is right now, if, if we didn't have some place of, of separation from the good and the evil, then we would always be suffering the way that we are now. And as has been said, that the world is the closest to, to hell as we will ever know, and as close as heaven is that the non-believer will ever know. I pray that we would understand the significance and the urgency of this, God, and that our, our hearts will be broken to the point that we're willing to actually do what you've called us to do. May we love people enough to pray for them so that when the opportunity arises to speak, we will be able to speak not just to them, but speak from you to them, that we would have the right words. Break our heart for what breaks yours, God. And we know that your heart is broken for the lost. And I pray, God, as we go through this week, that you will keep this in our mind, in the forefront of, of, of what we're thinking of, what we're doing. Not a resolution, Lord just a change of mind. We are so very thankful that you died for us, Jesus. We celebrated that at communion time, but we are so very grateful that you paid the price for our sins so that we can be eternally with you in heaven, in life, and not in death. But we pray for you to be with us this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you guys. Have a great day. Be careful out in the snow.